What a cool start to the morning. I uh, feel like we kind of get back to reality now when I'm going to open my mouth after that awesome time of worship and video. And I don't clap my hands, Clint. I, I don't know when to clap, so I'm kind of... It's, it's embarrassing, so I don't do it. So I'm not being an ogre. Let's start our morning with prayer. It sounds like I'm really loud, and it may just be me thinking I am. I may not be, so I'll press on, but maybe turn it down if you need to. Lord, we want to, uh, first of all, this morning, lift up another church in our community. I'm thankful for the chance to lift up Mineral Heights Baptist Church this morning. I know next to nothing about Mineral Heights Baptist Church other than where they are geographically, Lord, but we also know, also learned this morning that they are looking for a, a pastor right now. And just imagining what a, a difficult season that can be for a church that's not elder-led, uh, just uh, wanting to lift them up, Lord. I want to lift up their staff, uh, lift up their deacons and leadership, that you'll sustain them through this season, Lord. I, I pray that you would lead them toward a, a, a pastor and eventually a plural uh, design where they would be able to brave seasons like this, maybe with less difficulty than they may be right now. Uh, Lord, just uh, want to lift them up for your glory. I ask that you'd be glorified in them and through them. I pray that you would grow them through this season. Lord, we pray that on the other end of this season would be uh, a season of renewal and health and strength and growth. Uh, Lord, we pray that they would have great problems like uh, seating issues and parking issues and um, too many people wanting to serve. Just uh, thankful for uh, the chance to serve you with them in this community and thankful for the chance to lift them up this morning. Lord, I want to pray for uh, these next few minutes and just thankful for the, the um, opportunity that we have to climb into your word. I'm thankful that it's just so rich and so um, equipping Lord, I pray that you would use this time uh, to equip the saints for the work of service. Turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, please. If you don't know where that is, that's okay. Don't be embarrassed about that at all. Uh, even if you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to grab that Bible that's either in your seat. I think it'll be in front of you, underneath the, the seat there. And it's on page 977. Don't fret if you can't go right to it. I am preaching from the Bible this morning. That's what we do every Sunday. So if this is your first experience with us this morning, um, we may have some little stories here and there, but that's not the point. I, I don't have a lot to offer other than unpacking and exposing this Bible. So that's what we're going to do here in these next few minutes. I think it's fitting that I give a little bit of history of what life was like years ago on our membership renewal Sunday. Uh, we didn't plan that this sermon was going to be this morning on Membership Renewal Sunday. I think it was a nice, um, nicely orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. And um, I think giving you a little bit of background of uh, some stuff that we went through with Scott and I specifically. We were the only people on full-time staff originally. Um, and in addition, even my secretary was part-time at that point. Um, but Scott and I, really, we had a handful of families here at Cross Point. Um, our families, obviously mine and Scott's, uh, Brad and Christy were here. Uh, a handful of other families in the very beginning uh, that were um, part of a planting team that came from Ridgecrest Baptist Church. 
And some of them were temporary. Some of them were planning to go back to Ridgecrest after a time commitment. So, um, oh, and we also had a handful of folks that were part of Bethel Baptist Church, which is Bethel used to be on this location. So they just, I guess, kind of in the habit of going there to church. So they kept coming here. And um, so we had a small group of people. Um, Scott and I, realizing that we needed to connect to our community, decided that we needed to go door to door. We had a map of Greenville that we kept on a wall. We highlighted streets that we visited one street at a time. Our goal was to visit every home south of I-30. I don't know if we quite did that, but we came really close. We didn't get in, out of, you know, out into the rural, rural that's hard, hard to say, rural areas. Uh, but we got uh, out, you know, Old Mill and places like that was about as far out as we went. But uh, it was interesting. It was interesting to take a sort of what I will acknowledge is a snapshot of our community. Everybody wasn't home. It's during the work day. So there was that. There were lots of people that weren't home. Um, there may, be, have been, may have been some bias influenced in that. If po- folks that are home might have some certain bias there that we weren't able to recognize. So I acknowledge it was a snapshot. But it was a big snapshot. We got to visit with a lot of people over months. We wanted people to know that we were here. We wanted to encourage them to be part of their church home. And if they weren't part of one, to come visit with us. So we passed out cards and we had scores of conversations. What we found in those visits is we found scores of people and scores of conversations who didn't have a church home, but who professed to love God and to know the Lord through Christ's work. What came often or what was coupled with those conversations in those particular types of conversations was maybe um, a past experience that Either they or a family member had had that was very negative that led them to just say, I'm just not going to do church anymore. Um, Some of the folks that we talked to didn't necessarily have a bad experience. They just didn't see a real need for it. They had fond recollections of a baptism maybe years and years past or a fond recollection as a child participating in BBS or something like that. But scores of people we found in our community had no use for church, but yet they might profess, in a lot of cases, to know and love the Lord. Um, I, I thought I came up with a novel name for it. It turns out somebody had already used it, and I was bummed because I was going to put the circle C after it and everything. Churchless Christianity was the name that we came up with is to find out. I can't remember who's already used it, but it's a great term, churchless Christianity. And I put quotations marks, quotation marks around Christianity because that's for God to decide what that actually is. I have my opinions about that, but thankfully I don't judge the heart. But it appears to be something that we could call churchless Christianity. One of the things that I've struggled with over the years in those visits and in the years since then is struggle with the thought that how could anyone be so foolish to think that God is okay with that? It, it's baffling for me. First of all, just I'll point this out. The Bible really has nothing to say to the churchless Christian. There's no letter that's written to those who are not part of a church family and are what we might call stay-at-home Christians. The letters that are in our Bible, in our New Testament, one right after another, are written to churches. The Roman church, the Corinthian church, 
Galatian church, churches, the Ephesian church, Philippian church, Colossian churches. First and second Thessalonians are written to the Thessalonian churches. And the book of, or the sermon really of Hebrews is written to the Hebrew church. There are some letters in our New Testament that aren't written to churches, but they're written either to pastors, First and Second Timothy and Titus, or they're written to church people who you find as you read have an involvement and connection to a church family. So really it's baffling how someone might believe that God would be okay with some sort of relationship with his son, but no relationship with God's people. I, I, I believe, now granted, it's a snapshot, and I'm it, it, in some ways a caricature to summarize what everybody's thinking. <laughs> but I believe what's going on at the heart of churchless Christianity, if we can even call it that, is the mistaken belief that faith is just about God and me. And that there's no element of me and you in faith. It's just about God and me. And I think it misses that faith is also a me and you thing. Where we're going today in Ephesians chapter 4, I think, is going to equip you, first of all, I think, to not fall prey to that lie. I think it's a lie. Secondly, that's first. Secondly, to equip you to engage your churchless Christian neighbors and workmates. And I think there's a lot of them. I think there's a lot of them. So see this morning as equipping for you and equipping for you to then go and engage your neighbors. Ephesians chapter 4, I'll give you just a brief context, a brief picture of context here. Uh, the first three chapters in the book of Ephesians are really, in some ways, we could summarize as God's verbs. Okay? They're Greek uh, indicatives. They are verbs that show us one right after another what God has done for us, the church, in Christ. Okay? The first three chapters are God's verbs. The next three chapters are our verbs. Okay? It's one way to think about it. God's verbs, the indicatives, and then the next three chapters are our verbs, the imperatives. And where we're beginning here in chapter 4 this Sunday, last Sunday was a little bit of a, a big picture, just sort of getting us back into it. We're going to really climb into chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 this morning. As you saw from the video, if you were paying attention, we are talking about unity right now. and We're, gonna, we're beginning this Sunday a series on church unity that comes right from... Ephesians chapter 4. Chapter 4 through 6 are a reasonable, necessary, and appropriate response to chapters 1 through 3. And Paul points it out with one word, that a second word in chapter 4 verse 1 is the word therefore. He's pointing back to these three chapters, therefore, because of those three things, those three chapters worth of stuff that God did. Now you, Ephesian church, go do these things. Okay, so let's climb in and let's look and see what he says here. Uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I, therefore, you could include in light of three chapters worth of God's verbs, I, therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let me give you a little map for how we're going to spend these next few minutes. First of all, we're going to deal with a reminder from Paul, an important reminder. And then secondly, we're going to deal with three part, his three-part appeal. There are three parts to it in these verses. Okay, So let's first deal with his uh, reminder. First, in this passage in verse 1, he reminds them of their calling. Okay, repeated words are a clue that God is making a point for us through the writer, through Paul's writing. And repeated words here point us to uh, walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. First, he's reminding them of their call. Now, let me point out that their call has a vertical aspect, a vertical element to it. If you've been with us on the Ephesians series back when we began it some time ago, in chapter 1, the, pretty much the entirety of chapter 1 and the first 10 verses of chapter 2 are dedicated to the call into relationship and re, a restored relationship with our Creator, what we might call a vertical call. Chapters 1 and chapter 2, all the way through verse 10, are in some ways about our vertical call into reconciliation with our Creator. Now the rest of chapter 2 and pretty much all of chapter 3 have to do with what we might call a horizontal calling. These next few minutes might be the most important part of this morning. Okay, As we talk about this horizontal calling, I, I suspect it's going to be a new insight for many of you. Chapter 2, verses 11 through the rest of chapter 2 and 3 have to do with a horizontal calling to be members, meaningful members of one another. To be unified, in many ways, our calling into fellowship with one another. The me and you aspect. Let me give you a couple little snapshots. Chapter 2, verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, that's Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. Okay, he's reminding them here in this of their calling into a unified access with the most unlikely of partners, Jew and Gentile. Polar opposites, extremes, have been called into this one new body, into this one access through the Spirit. Calling in a horizontal direction. Look at verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers. This is chapter 2, verse 19. Another little snapshot of horizontal calling. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the singular household of God. He's reminding them, teaching them here in these first three chapters of their calling as former strangers and aliens into one household, God's household. Listen to this. I want you to understand this and see this. Their calling was just as much into restored relationship with their creator as it was a calling into a novel as in never-before-experienced relationship with one another. Man, I hope you saw that last week. If you weren't here last week, I hope you go back and listen and see it. That's gorgeous. That's beautiful. They're calling, when you pan out in these first three chapters of Ephesians, 
you see that their calling is not just about some vertical reconciliation, but also about horizontal reconciliation into a novel, never-before-experienced, otherworldly union with one another. There's a name for that union and that people and that household of God. It's called the church. Man, that's beautiful. That, let me just tell you, is a radical thought in Greenville, Texas. Whenever we first moved here, I heard that it was the most highly saturated church environment in the world. Somebody said it was in the Guinness Book of Records. I looked for it. Uh, There's lots of cool stuff in there. I didn't see that, but (laughs) crazy stuff. But it wouldn't surprise me. You can throw a rock and nearly hit a church in any direction. Throw a rock in any direction and nearly hit a church. In the most highly, potentially, the most highly saturated, if not the most plenty saturated church environment, maybe in the world, we experience a churchless Christianity in many ways that would hear that statement and call that a radical thought. That our calling is not just vertical, but horizontal. Listen to this. We've each been called to individual salvation. Man, we get in that baptistry that we, I'm pointing to, I'm not pointing toward the floor. That's where we have the baptistry for those of you who haven't visited before. It's like a little uh, uh, horse trough. Uh, we, we, you get in that thing one at a time. Okay, you get in there one at a time. Man, let's acknowledge we are called into salvation individually, but we are also called into a corporate body of believers. And let me point this out to you there's only one calling. Chapter 4, verse 1 doesn't say, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner of the worthy, uh, worthy of your callings to which you've been called. He doesn't say there's this vertical calling between you and God as you're called into restoration and fellowship with your Creator. And then there's this horizontal thing with one another. It's one call. It's one singular call. And here's maybe the most radical thing I'll say all morning, but it it may not be radical to y'all at all, but in Greenville, this is radical. The reality is the churchless Christian, our churchless Christianity is practically the same thing as Christless Christianity because there's just one call. I'm going to say it another way. Churchless Christianity is practically the same thing as Christless Christianity because it is functionally callless Christianity. It's callless Christianity. I'm going to throw out half of the call or ignore half of the call and just accept this one half. You've thrown it all out, buddy. Churchless Christianity is functionally and effectively and practically the same thing as Christless Christianity. Man, that's a radical thought in Greenville, Texas. I, I hope that you can see it from the passage and see that I'm not, and from the book of Ephesians, and see that I'm not just conjuring up radical stuff to be some sort of shock preacher. I hope you can see those calls that are in parallel and see in chapter 4, verse 1, this reminder of a singular call. And I hope that just now you've been equipped not only to not fall prey to the lie that, some, that, that Satan might try to convince you of, that ah, you can go it alone. There's a place for the stay-at-home Christian. And secondly, I hope that you see that you've just been equipped to engage your neighbor, Greenville Gary. I just happened to look at Gary, not Not Gary. Greenville Gary is what we've called him for years. 
Greenville Gary says, I love Jesus, I just don't need the church. I hope you have been equipped to give an account for the hope within with gentleness and respect. And you can do more than just say, man, you need to listen to this sermon. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. Maybe they will. Maybe they will. But man, if you say, hey, can I sit down and show you something from the Bible? Can you trust and believe that his word is effective and will not return void? Does that seem weird for you? Let me just tell you, that's what you're being equipped for is to engage your, your neighborhood and your workspace and your community. Man, they're not coming in here. You're going there. It may be a new thought for you to think. I've just been equipped to go there with something that is salty and bright and aromatic and life-altering, and I can point my friend, family, neighbor, or brother to Ephesians and show them that there's just one calling. It's vertical and horizontal, and that they need to be part of a church home. Set them free, too, and say, go back to the church you were baptized in, just so they don't think it's self-serving and we're just trying to stuff our building. Encourage them to go back to the place that they recalled that VBS from decades ago. Say, go back there. Go taste and see that the Lord is good. Because that calling, if he began a good work in you, he's going to be faithful to complete it by bringing you back into fellowship with God's people. You've been equipped to engage. Realize that. Now, the rest of the sermon. For the called. We're going to just consider the three parts of Paul's appeal in these three passages. This is for the called. This is for us. And you might hear me use the terms interchangeably. This is for the church in Ephesus, or this is for y'all. In many ways, they are interchangeable because we're both living on this side of the cross. We're both churches, so we can almost walk in it interchangeably. The difference in context doesn't have a whole lot of difference for how this plays out for us. Now, I'm going to break this down into three parts. Th- Three parts, excuse me. Walking. <laughs> uh, 14 years, I knew it, something like that would happen eventually. Paul's appeal in three parts. First of all, walking worthily with humility, gentleness, and patience. Walking worthily, the called are called to walk worthily with humility, humility, gentleness, and patience. It's pretty spectacular stuff here, wouldn't you agree? I mean, humility, gentleness, and patience in walking. Anybody ever see somebody walking around their neighborhood and are wowed by their walking? There's no wow factor in walking. Even walking at the Olympics. Didn't the Olympics have the walking or something now? If they do, they shouldn't. It's, it's just walking. Now, it's weird if you've seen the, the competitive walking, but even that is just walking. There's nothing spectacular about walking, which is a nice word for where we're going in these next few minutes as we consider these Three parts of this appeal. It's just a walk. It's about how the called are to do life. It's an unimpressive plotting, a manner of life that we have with one another. It's just walking. And it's walking, what we're called to is walking worthily. The word worthily in Greek here is a nice, there's a beautiful word or image behind it. It means bringing up the other beam of the scales. It was what it means, literally. Bringing up the other beam of the scales, bringing into equilibrium. In some ways, you could say that chapters 4 through 6 bring into balance chapters 1 through 3. What God has done over here, we fittingly bring into balance 
by what we walk in in chapters 4 through 6. And the thought here is that humility, gentleness, and patience balance out your calling. It's a fitting response for what you've been called to. Now let's look at these three words. First of all, humility. This Greek word really didn't even exist before New Testament times. Here's what's really cool about this word. I'm not going to share with you the Greek because you would just brain dump it, and it's not that important to me either. What it, uh, it, it is a word that did not exist before New Testament times because it is a holy Christian word. We have dibs on it. Don't you love that? That's our word. That is a Christian concept. The word did not even exist. There was a guy named Epictetus from A.D. 50 to 130 was his lifespan. He listed this word in the Greek first among the qualities not to be commended. In the Greek context, this was not a commendable quality. Humility. Yet it's at the top of the list for the called. Humility. If you want to know what it looks like, Romans 12 verse 3 does a nice job of sort of capturing the spirit of humility. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Humility means lowliness of mind. The opposite of humility is pride, haughtiness, high-mindedness, which, interestingly enough, remember we're talking about unity? All of those things are counter-unity. Pride, haughtiness, and high-mindedness foster division. And on the other hand, humility, lowliness of mind, fosters unity. It's what the called walk in. Secondly, the called walk in gentleness, this next word we can grab here. Uh, it's a good thing that I'm preaching this message today because I'm an expert on this one in particular, gentleness. <sighs> There's some snickers around the room. I don't really know why. <laughs> Let me give a little more shape to this word, okay? We have to go back to our ancient... Um, Greek to understand the word and understand what it meant there. And some of the ancient philosophers are the guys that gave shape to these ancient words. They're the guys that developed the parking place. Now, we've used a contemporary version of gentleness, which just says, man, you're just kind of uh, uh, meek. Okay, let me, ha- let me round this particular word out for you, gentleness. Aristotle defined it as the mean, okay, All the L3ers in here know exactly what I'm talking about. Everybody else, the average, okay, the mean between excessive anger against everyone on all occasions and never being angry with anything. Okay, I'm going to read it again. The mean between excessive anger against everyone on all occasions and never being angry with anyone over anything. Gentleness is the mean between angry and never angry. It's not the absence of anger. This might give some shape to a passage you might read later in Ephesians that says, Be angry and do not sin. There's place for the gentle person to be angry at times, like our gentle Lord clearing the temple. Barclay, another commentator, defined it as a man who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. That's gentleness. The called are called to walk in it. 
The third thing here is patience. This word is a beautiful definition of, I don't even know how in the world somebody would come up with this, with a word for this, but this word is, this is what this word means. It's delightful. The indomitable patience, okay, the word I know is in the definition, but you just, just roll with it. You're going to see the visual. The indomitable patience of the inhabitants of a city under siege who plant turnips and hope to eat the ripened result before the city's ultimate defeat. Isn't that amazing? I'm gonna, i got to read it again. It's just so great. I couldn't wait to share that with you. The indomitable patience of the inhabitants of a city under siege who plant turnips and hope to eat the ripened result before the city's ultimate defeat. Patience is holding out for turnips before you die. Oh, man. Obviously having a really low bar of expectation there, all right? But holding out even for a low bar. Man, that just made me laugh. Here's how I think it applies to each other, to one another. Remember, all of these things are what we extend toward each other. Humility and gentleness and patience. With each other, it means we are to wait patiently on each other, even in the absence of immediate results. Like a farmer who waits for the harvest to come in in God's time. Mm. That's easy to read, isn't it? (laughs) Easy to hear. It means we're to wait patiently on each other, even in the absence of immediate results, like a farmer who waits for the harvest to come in God's time. Patience with each other remembers We're not machines. We're people. We're like gardens that over time maybe look less like a jungle and more like Eden as we keep plodding and keep walking. Patience is what we're called to, walking with each other. The second part of Paul's appeal is in chapter two, or excuse me, chapter one, verse two b. So let's look at that. I'm going to read it, verses one and two again, just for the sake of integrity. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience. And here's his second part of his appeal: bearing with one another in love. It doesn't say. Fixing one another in love. Wouldn't you like it if it did? <laughs> we just our job is just to fix each other. It doesn't say avoiding one another in love either, which is what I usually do. If I'm having to forbear one of you, I might just avoid you. That's a whole lot easier. But the encouragement here, the call, the appeal is to forbear. Forbear means to patiently tolerate someone who is difficult or foolish. I want to remind you, we're talking about church people here. We're not talking about those people you work with or you live by. We're talking about one another. First of all, that should give you a clue that if you're looking for a church home and you're looking for a church home that doesn't have any foolish or difficult people, you're going to end up being the stay-at-home Christian because you're not going to find it. Foolish and difficult people are in every church. And let me give you a little heads up. This this will be really helpful for you. The difficult and foolish person is never, ever you. It is always someone else. 
I mean always someone else. When people think of the difficult or foolish person, they are never, ever, ever thinking of you. All right, you know I'm being facetious. Chances are you're on someone's forbear list. And if you think you aren't, I can make you a promise you are. You may be on multiple forbear lists, turnip lists, we could call them. You're on somebody's turnip list where the best we can hope for is turnips. Humility, gentleness, and patience are easy with people who are easy. But then when you take those three things and you move them toward people who are difficult, which are all of us at times, difficult or foolish, man, the charge to forbear acknowledges we, uh, we don't always do life with our admirers and close friends. We don't even do church always with our admirers and close friends. Man, I guarantee in church you're going to find some of the most difficult personality combinations that you may ever experience to try and do life together in a close, meaningful way, man, you have to forbear. But we do it. And the motive behind it is the little prepositional phrase after it, in love. What compels us to forbear with the difficult and foolish is love. That's the motive. Because as God has loved us, not if we're difficult, but when we're difficult. Maybe on the rare occasion, when, even when we're not difficult. As in, he loves us relentlessly. We are to love one another and forbear one another. If you stick around church long enough, I promise you, you'll have some stories of pain. Or stories of sadness. Or stories of disappointment. I promise you. Because you're walking with people. They're forgiven people. But you're still walking with people. But the call is to forbear one another in love. We don't give up on each other. We hold out. Even if it's just holding out for turnips. We hold out. Humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance in love aren't things that come naturally or easily. They take effort. They are work. Church is work. Man, it's hard work. The last little part of Paul's appeal is going to help us understand the nature of the work. So let's move to that. That's in verse 3. Verse 3 says that eager, remember we're bearing with one another in love, we're forbearing each other, Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The third part of this appeal is to be eager to maintain hard-won unity. Now I want to draw out three words here that are a strange combination if you think about them. Eager, maintain, and unity. Let me see if I can help you gather these things up. First of all, we should be eager to maintain something that you already have. Thankfully, we don't have to go creating unity or building unity or fostering unity or conjuring unity somehow on our own efforts. It's already been hard won for us through the work of the cross and everything that went along with it. Christ's birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and session. That's what won our unity. And the spirit that is given to us is the bond of peace, that unity between us. It's profound. It's not something we have to create or build. It was already given to us. So we should be eager 
to maintain it. Now, this word eager means that we should be busy making haste. We should be proactive, especially conscientious in discharging an obligation is what it means. Like zealous to maintain this unity. Now, the word that sort of sticks out as an odd word is the word maintenance. And it's the nature of our work with one another. Maintenance. I'm so impressed by some of you who are able to build stuff. Morris Bean, uh, Kyle Nelson can take like a piece of wood and make the coolest pen you've ever seen, you know, and that's creating something. It's awesome, okay? Uh, Clay Petzl can take a bicycle and turn it into a wood splitter, like in an hour, <laughs> with a welder, you know, he's just out there, shh, and he can just whip it up. That amazes me, okay? That's some awesome creative work. And Clay is also another guy that I'm going to point out. It's a guy that can fix anything. I don't know. He just knows how to fix stuff. Some of you are... Ken Rodden is another. Can fix anything. Can just fix stuff. Making stuff and fixing stuff is pretty awesome. If somebody calls you and says, hey, man, what you been up to this weekend? Uh, man, I was just making some pins out of a, uh, out of a sequoia. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Or I was just making a wood splitter out of a, out of a bicycle. It's pretty awesome. Okay, I was fixing my car. I was under the hood dis- disassembling the engine. That's pretty awesome, right? But if you called a friend and said, hey, what you been up to this weekend? I've just been maintaining some stuff. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. That's pretty impressive. Sounds like walking. You just been maintaining some stuff? Yeah. Yeah, I was kind of cleaning like the baseboards and changing oil in my car and stuff. That's the word that sticks out as an unusual word, but one that is such a treasure should be treasure for us because it should teach you what to expect among each other is our job is just maintenance with each other. We're maintaining what was already hard won. You know, I, I, I get my oil changed at Jeff Willingham's shop down there, the Lube Center. I don't ever see those guys leaving feeling really accomplished at the end of the day. But you know what? They keep me rolling. Three months or 3,000 miles. Every three months or 3,000 miles, and I'm still rolling. It's unimpressive, but that's the nature of our work with one another. Proactive eagerness and busyness, and I'm going to put it to you like this, in keeping short accounts with one another. How about that? That's otherworldly, isn't it? We don't do that at work. We don't do that in our neighborhoods. You know how fast things can go south and how people can gang up on one another. But in the church, it should be different. Sadly, the church doesn't always have a reputation of this. But this should be the place that's otherworldly and salty and bright and aromatic as a place that, wait a second, these guys really work. They're eager. They're making haste to maintain what was already hard won. They're keeping really short accounts with one another. This is a book that I've encouraged over the years that Scott has encouraged, a book by a guy named Ken Sandy called The Peacemakers. If you haven't read it, You have a treasure of resources that you haven't taken advantage of yet. An unbelievable resource. But there's something even better than Ken Sandy's Peacemaker right here in our Bible. just gives us clues into how to maintain hard-won unity. And I'm not going to steal my thunder for later in chapter 4, but I want to point out just a couple of passages, a couple of little tips tidbits of what's going to come later, some really rich and awesome stuff. Chapter 4, verse 15 says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Chapter 4, verse 15, that phrase, speaking the truth in love, is actually the verb. It's a participle. It would be truthing one another. The word speak is not even in there. 
You want to work at keeping a short account with one another in a way that's otherworldly, in a way that's appropriate of the calling? Let's start with truthing one another. Like making an effort to be absolutely open and true with one another. Man, that's easier said than done, isn't it? Truthing one another. Here's how that might play out later in chapter 4. Look at verses 25 and 26, and this is, then we're going to land the plane. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth. It's, it's in the original language there. Speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. The periodic oil change on my vehicle is three months or 3,000 miles. Okay? You might fudge that a little bit. But for the people of God, in terms of maintenance with one another, it's daily. Daily. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Work at keeping short and clean accounts with one another truthing one another, speaking the truth with one another in love. It doesn't say speak with everyone else about somebody that you're forbearing. Isn't that what usually happens? We talk with everybody but that person that's on your nerves. You think that helps? That's divisive, and it's harmful, and it's damaging. The people of God, though, we make a beeline to one another, and we keep short accounts with one another, because what's coming the next Sunday supper the supper and that's where we're going in these next few minutes worship means holding on to chapters 1 through 3 and resting in chapters 1 through 3 as we strive to walk in chapters 4 through 6 walking worthily in humility gentleness and patience forbearing one another in love Eager to maintain hard-won unity. Matthew chapter 5 is where I'm going to read from the supper. And I've alluded to what, what the meaning here uh, just a moment ago. So I'll read the passage and then we'll distribute our elements. Matthew chapter 5 verse 21 is embedded within the Sermon on the Mount. And Christ here is speaking about anger. And he's speaking about anger with one another. Okay, listen to what he says. You have heard that it was said to, the, said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, that's some pretty significant stuff there. Now listen to what he says next. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This passage shows us that clearly there's a vertical and horizontal and that they are connected. Worship with your God is connected to unity and fellowship with your brother. In fact, so much so that you want to offer something to God. If you brought an offering today, you got a little check right here. If you want to take the supper here in the next few minutes, and you know that you've hurt a brother, you may not know, and that's hard. But if you know you've hurt a brother or sister, if you know that you've hurt your wife or children, man, leave it. Leave it in your pocket. 
Can you believe I said that? Can you believe you heard that in the church? Keep your offering. Keep it. And don't take the supper. When we distribute these elements, do this. Pass on that supper. Keep that check. And then make haste. Be eager to keep an account, a short account, with the one that you've wronged. And then come back and gobble up next week. Gobble it up and give it in. Turn it in. Make that offering once you've cleaned it up. We're going to distribute the elements now and we will uh, take the supper together. Please pray about what I just shared with you. I want to encourage you as we distribute the elements, maybe before it passes in front of you, just to think, man, is there somebody that I've hurt or wronged? Is there somebody I need to talk through something with? Is there a brother or sister that I'm crossways with? Have I done all that I can to reconcile that? If you haven't, pass on it. If you have, take and eat. Okay, let's distribute the elements.